0: Good morning, everybody. Glad to have you here in person. If you're here in the room today and if you are uh, watching online, welcome as, uh, as well. We hope that uh, each of you had a, had a good and a, and a safe Thanksgiving holiday. And uh, of course, the, the calendar tells us, right, uh, Thanksgiving is over. Uh, Christmas is just around the corner. I heard, uh, I heard this morning that we've got a snowstorm possibly coming right on Tuesday So uh, you know what that means. It means, means, of course, that the year is coming to a close, right? Uh, 2020 is wrapping up. 2021 is on the horizon. Some of you are clapping, thinking that in some way everything's going to change, right, when it flips from December 31st to January 1st. Now, if we're all just a little bit honest with each other, regardless of how you might have individually experienced 2020, it has been a little bit tough, right? Right? There's been lots of aspects to it. There's all the things that we went through. I, I, I would think it's safe to say that most of us sitting in this room, most of us watching online, most people in the world uh, have been affected by 2020 in a, in a significant way. I understand there's levels of, of significance, and some of you sitting here today have, have, have walked through this in, in different ways than I have. And, of course, that's understandable, the experience of all of us. Is different, but I would say that the 2020 could we say it's been a little bit messy? Could we, could we say that it's, it's been a little bit chaotic? It's been a little bit disjointed, right? And, and the funny part is, even as I say that, don't we really understand that life has always been disjointed since sin entered the world? Like going all the way back to the first human beings, life got messy when sin entered the world. Now, there's different, I mean, that doesn't mean that life is always messy, right? Because anybody have anything good happen to them this week? I did. I had some good stuff, I had some stuff that made me happy, right? Uh, there's some circumstantial stuff that I experienced. I'm like, that, that was fun, that was good. And, I'm, and I bet you did too, but you probably also, you know, it's, it's like every day we wake up, it's like there's this little cloud hanging over, We're a little bit like Eeyore, right? We got the cloud hanging over us as we walk, as we walk through life. Uh, there's some of that that we experience, But but whether 2021 is significantly different than 2020, I think we recognize that as humanity, humanity and life on earth is messy. We we understand that maybe a little bit more acutely in 2020. But here's the thing, and and why I'm spending some time talking about this is, uh, next week we're going to start a new series. We're going to take a pause from John and hop into a a series we're calling uh, for Christmas, God in Our Midst. It could be titled, God in Our Mess. Because that's exactly what happened in the incarnation. God didn't shy away from. God didn't turn away from. God didn't ignore the mess and the sin and the struggle and the pain and the tragedy. He invaded it. He came into our midst. So beginning next Sunday, we're going to talk about how in the midst of, uh, of our despair, In the midst of our depression, in the midst of our gloom, God gives us hope. In the midst of hatred, anger, and scorn, God, in the midst of of all of that, in Jesus, brings love. In the midst of our sorrow, in the midst of disappointment, in the midst of sadness, God actually, in Jesus, brings joy. In the midst of sin and death, God brings what? Life. And in the midst of chaos and stress and feeling at wit's end, God actually, in, the, in Jesus, brings peace. Some of you will recognize those kind of like four traditional themes of what's known as Advent. But we're hoping that in this time, as we, as we take this a little bit, maybe a little bit of a fresh approach to looking at those themes, that it will be meaningful to you, it will resonate with you, and it will challenge you to embrace the one who is embracing us, even as life has been and always will be, a little bit messy. So that's what we're looking forward to in the in the month of December: is God in our midst, God in our mess. But for today, we're going to be in, finishing up chapter five of the Gospel of John. And again, whether you're here in the room or you're online, uh, Emma uh, Emma Prong, uh, who is on the piano and leading our worship today, uh, she uh, mentioned to our our, our worship team at our worship uh, team our pre-service meeting. You know, she kind of just was challenging all of us, like, "Hey, if you if you, if you haven't read through the book of John as we're studying it, you know that this will be a great time to do that." And, and I just want to echo her comments to all of us. Uh, you might not you, you might live in, in in a state far away or another part of the world, and so you're not you're not part of Calvary in person, but. Uh, Whether you are or you aren't, I just encourage you to invest some time in the Gospel of John. And as you do that, and I pray that the time we've already invested into it has been meaningful to you as we've worked through now almost the first five chapters. Remember that chapter five began when Jesus was in Jerusalem for a feast, and he was at this place known as the Pool of Bethesda. and, And at that pool, there were lots of people, perhaps hundreds of people, who were paralyzed blind, lame, needy people, and they were there by that pool because they believed that an angel stirred the waters, and when the angel stirred the waters, if they could just get into the water first, they'd receive some sort of healing, and so Jesus met a man there. He met a man there, and he actually healed that man, and it happened to be on a Sabbath that he healed that man, and uh, that created controversy with Jesus and his opponents, and we learn from verse 18 that Jesus actually kind of like elevated, escalated the controversy, when he, when he had this, uh, this, this incredulous in their minds and the Jews' minds claim that he would somehow be equal with God. It says in verse 18 of John 5 that for this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Seeking and continuing to seek, right? Not just seeking in the past one time, but seeking and continuing to seek is the tense of that verb. All the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath when he healed that man, But also, excuse me, was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And Jesus, again, not shying away from that, he actually again doubled down, or maybe we could say he tripled down on that, and said to them in three different times in the last couple of weeks, we looked at these passages where he said, truly, truly, amen, amen, verily, verily, surely, surely. That, that emphatic that only John uses in a, in a double way there. Only John does it, and he does it 25 times. And it's like John is saying to us, you know, hear this, know this, believe this, don't miss this. And what Jesus would go on to say about himself is that his equality with God, in fact, was very real. He said, I can do the same things that my father does. I have the same capability. I may do the same things that my Father would ultimately do. I have received his authority, and in fact, my identity is one that is worthy of the same honor as the Father. <clears throat> so his capability, his authority, and his status all demonstrated his, his equality with God. And then as it relates to life itself, the passage we looked at last week as we continued in this again, more of the words of Jesus himself filling up there in chapter 5, is we saw that Jesus is the giver of life, right? And remember, when he's saying he gives eternal life, it wasn't just eternal life and the life to come, but he actually gives us life now. That's, again, that's part of that kind of little bit connected to that theme of God in our midst, that in the midst of everything we're experiencing, we are people who are alive. We're not dead. We're alive. And if you've never received Jesus, though you may think you're alive, the, the, the kicker is you're actually dead because you're spiritually dead. So this, this truth that Jesus is the giver of life, and why is he able to, to give us life? Because he's the one who is the possessor of life. Remember the, the little illustration I used, you know? I said, I couldn't, I don't have the, the right to give the Gortney snowblower uh, to the prongs for, uh, for this week, for this big storm coming, because it's not mine. I could give them my own, right? And I could give that to them. I'm free to do that with something that's mine. And that's who, the way Jesus gives life, because he has it, because he possesses it. He gives it to us and ultimately we saw that he's the assessor of our life in the end ultimately he's the one who is our judge now more than more than any other book in the new testament john's gospel emphasizes the importance of witness this importance of witness in john's gospel is something that we've already seen he uses this concept in, in a variety of ways, uh, but today's passage that we're going to look at, beginning in verse 30, is noteworthy. As John uh, gives, gives us in these, in these verses that we're going to look, and we're going to take cha- verse 30 all the way through the end of the chapter, he, say, he, he points out several witnesses, several testimonies that are born to Jesus. And so with that in mind, we're going to begin in verse 30 when we see the words of Jesus saying this. I can do nothing on my own. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Could we pray for just a second before we jump off into this? Father God, we thank you for what we've already been um, impacted by confronted with, challenged by, convicted with from the gospel of John so far. We pray today that you might open our minds up to hear that which is true, to hear from you. We pray that as we look at these, at these witnesses, uh, these ones who bore, te- bore testimony to Jesus and his identity, we pray, God, that you would, you would help us to become more and more and more convinced of who Jesus is, that he is the one who came to bring us life. We pray that in his name. Amen. Jesus says, I can can do nothing on my own. It's interesting. He doesn't say, it's not that he, he does not act independent of the Father. Jesus says about himself that he cannot act independent of the Father. The reason Jesus cannot act independent of the Father is because he and the Father are one. He says he came in the, kind of the middle part of that, of, the, of that verse there. It says, I do not seek my own will. That, that verse, uh, or that, that verb, seek, is actually in the present tense, which implies that Jesus is talking about his ongoing daily life in his life choices. He doesn't seek his own will, but instead he seeks the will of his father, which then leads him into talking about that very first witness of who he is. Jesus is going to identify in our passage today five different witnesses, and the first witness is the witness of his father that helps us to uh, us to understand of who uh, the 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 person of Jesus, who he actually is. Jesus says there in verse thirty-one and thirty-two, "If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true." The reason that Jesus says this is actually the law of Moses in Deuteronomy 19 said that two or three witnesses are necessary. And the rabbis of Jesus' day definitely said that no man could stand on his own witness. Like if the, if the only testimony you had was that of your own, then that wasn't good enough. And so Jesus is kind of embracing that ideal, that Jewish ideal, when he says, if I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies about me. And I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. If only Jesus' opponents had eyes to see, they would discern that the Father actually was bearing witness to the whole life of Jesus. Now it's not explicit that Jesus, in these verses, it's not explicit about who exactly he's speaking of when he says this. But I think from the context and, and the way in which Jesus refers to this, the way he and the way he leads into it, and then how he comes out of it, I believe it is it is a reasonable assumption to make that Jesus is actually making reference to his father. As you can see, the translators of the New American Standard Bible, which is what I'm reading from, uh, they definitely believe that because at the end there in verse 32, that's why he, they capitalized he because they believe Jesus is referring to he as his father is the one who is, who is the, the testimony he is giving about him, that he's not referring to some human testimony, but he's giving uh, that, that, to, that uh, status to the father. And, and maybe to remove all doubt, if you just jump down a little bit further in the passage to verses 37 and 38, Jesus says, And the father who sent me... He has testified about me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. Also you do not have his word remaining in, in you because you do not believe him whom he sent. In, this, in, in, this, in these couple of verses, Jesus is identifying that it is this testimony that was really the one that mattered to, to Jesus. It and only it was sufficient. The testimony of the father about him. It was the father who said, this is my son, whom I love. In him I am well pleased. It was that testimony that ultimately was the only testimony that Jesus would need. He's not going to stop with only giving us the father's testimony. But again, if Jesus is saying that by identifying the fact that his father is the one who ultimately bears testimony to him, he said he's he's giving us this this impression that if, if only his opponents had eyes to see, they would again discern that the father was bearing witness to the whole life of Jesus, everything that he was about. But Jesus doesn't just stop with the witness of his father. Ultimately, really, in a sense, he could. That's all that matters. But he continues. He continues in verse 33, as we pick up the verse there, by sharing the witness of John the baptizer. Sometimes we call him John the Baptist. He says, you have sent messengers to John. You was in the emphatic, meaning it was their idea. It was the Jews' idea. You You have sent messengers to John, and he has testified to the truth. Now, we know that, Je- that, that, that that's Jesus referring to John testifying about him because Jesus identifies himself in John 14, 6 as the truth, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. It also should remind us of, of something that John tells us in verse, verses 6 through 8 of chapter 1. When referring to John, 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 the writer of the gospel, says about John the Baptist this, there came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. And so John identified at the very beginning of the book John the baptizer as a witness to to, uh, to Jesus as a witness to the light, as a witness to the truth, and Jesus there is continuing that. And it's, it's interesting that, that when, when Jesus says about John that he has testified to the, to the truth, that verb is actually, for testified, is actually in the perfect ten- tense that carries the suggestion of a witness that continues. John witness continues. In fact, the witness that we read, when we read the Gospels, the witness of John today points us what? To the light, to the Lamb to the one who, who is the Lord. We talked about all of that when we talked about the ministry of John the Baptist. His ministry continues. And what was his ministry? As one who would bear witness to the truth, bear witness to the light, bear witness to the lamb. That's why Jesus says about him in verses 35 and 36, he was the lamp that was burning and shining. And you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony I have is, actually greater than the testimony of John. But if, here's the whole thing, if they would have simply taken notice of John's witness, if they would have taken notice of John, uh, John's witness, Jesus seems to be suggesting that they would have started on the way that leads to salvation. But he really only needs his father's testimony, Right? He really only needs his father's testimony, but here's John, and if you would have simply listened, if you would have heeded his testimony, if you would have seen, if you would have seen him as one who was bearing witness to the truth, the light, the Lord, the Lamb, if you would have understood that you would have been on the way to salvation, but they missed it. So Jesus says, the, the Father bears witness to me. John bears witness to me. But again, as, ver, as verse 36 begins, Jesus says, I, the testimony I have is greater. And by the way, that word I is in the emphatic. The, I, I have is greater than the testimony of John for the works which the Father has given me to accomplish. The very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. So the third testimony Jesus is identifying is the, is, is the witness the me. Of his works. Could I suggest to you that in his sinlessness, in his kindness, in his compassion, in his courage, in his love, in his willingness to embrace the outcast, in his willingness to touch the untouchables, in his willingness to relate to those who were shunned in society, in all that Jesus did. Not just his miracles. Now, we, we recognize that his miracles speak volumes about his divinity. Remember the word simeon? Uh, for those of you who have worked through the Gospel of John with me, it's the, it's the words that we translate sign. It's not just an act of power, but it's an act which distinguishes someone as having a particular identity. We saw how John uses that word all throughout the Gospel to show us that Jesus is who he said he is. Namely, he is the Son of God. But it is not only those miraculous things. It's not only that Jesus turned water into wine. It's not only that he would raise people from the dead. It's not only that he would speak to that man by the pool of Bethesda and say, take up your mat and walk. But it would be that he would spend two days in Samaria when everyone else would have went around it. It would be that he would touch the leper when no one else would. It would mean that he would talk to the prostitute when no one else would. In all his life, all the works of Jesus testify to us that he is God. So we want to know what God is like. Watch what Jesus does and did, right? He is the exact representation of his being, of God's being, according to the New Testament. Is there more evidence that we need than that? Well, maybe we don't, but there is more. There's the witness of his works. There's the witness of His father. There's the witness of John the Baptizer. There's also the witness of the Word. Jesus says to his opponents, You examine the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is those very scriptures that testify about me. And yet you're unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. This idea of the scriptures. Giving witness to Jesus was something that is such a powerful reality that was so amazingly missed by those who invested so much time into Scriptures. The scribes of Jesus', de- of Jesus day had amassed an incredible uh, volume of trivial, you might say, useless information about the Scriptures. They knew how many verses, in fact, they knew how many letters were in each book of the Bible. They knew which verses had all the letters of the alphabet in them, as if that mattered. But they knew it. They knew the verse that was the exact middle of each book. But in knowing all of this stuff and much more trivial information about the Scriptures, they missed the message that it was all pointing toward him, toward the Messiah, toward Jesus, toward the light, toward the Lord, toward the Lamb, toward the one who would bring them life. Sometimes I wonder in the contemporary evangelical church if we have in some similar way amassed an incredible volume of trivial knowledge about the word of God we have not allowed the word of God to impact us to the point that it changes our life, that we see in that word the message about Jesus, and we embrace it it with obedience and submission. Don't tell me what you know about the Bible. Let me see your life as one that's living it out. Now, I understand we can't live what we don't know, so I'm not saying knowledge isn't important, but knowledge in and of itself is not transformational. So we dare not be like the scribes, like the many people of Jesus' day, again, seeing what he said about them, that that they were unwilling to come to him so that they could have life. The very thing that was pointing them to him, they missed, the witness of the word, the witness of his works, everything that he did in his entire life, the witness of John the baptizer, his his forerunner, the witness of his father. Jesus then is going to talk about how ultimately in the midst, right kind of in the middle of this passage, in the middle of all of this, and he's already referred to it in several several ways as as he's identified these different witnesses, but now he's going to directly say, in the midst of all of these witnesses, we have rejection by his fellow Jews. I have come in my Father's name, Jesus says in verse 43, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. But I come in my Father's name, and because that reality is so difficult for you to understand, even though my works testify about it, even though John the Baptizer testified about it, even though my Father himself testified about it, even though the Word, in fact, testifies about that this is true, I have come in his name, and you don't receive me. How can you believe, he goes on to say in verse 44, How can you believe when you accept glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one that accuses you is Moses, in in whom you have put your hope. Moses, in the minds of the Jews of Jesus' day, was the great lawgiver. And because the Jews so highly valued the law, and because they saw it as God's law, they were sure that Moses would be on their side. He wouldn't be their, their accuser. He would be their advocate. He was the lawgiver. They were people of the law. And as they stood as the people of Moses and the people of law, they had, they believed, they had confidence that though they might have other accusers, the one that would be on their side, the one who would be their advocate, the one who would be their defender, it, he, it would be Moses, Their attitude toward the law, they believe, secured the support of the great lawgiver himself, Moses. No matter who would stand against them before God, they could surely rely on Moses who gave them the law, and the law was center to their life and to their being. I read this quote by a commentator named Hoskins this week, and I thought it was so good I wanted to share it with you verbatim. He says, regarding this very aspect that Jesus is mentioning about how, about how the relationship of, of Moses was to, the, to his Jews, in relationship to that, he says this, the law of Moses is not a religion of salvation, is the categorical imperative of God by which people are accused and exposed as sinners. They are shown to need a savior, and Jesus comes to be just that, to read the law in the way that the Jews of Jesus' day did was to miss what Moses was really saying. So now what Jesus had said about all the writings of scripture, he's now going to say about the witness of Moses himself in scripture when he says, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. He's testifying about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? The great lawgiver himself points you to me. In fact, all of scripture points you to me. My entire life points you to the fact that I am the one. My father himself, John the baptizer too. In all of this, John is saying to us, he's saying to the Jews of Jesus' day, and he's saying to us today, There is adequate testimony born to Jesus, born to to the person of Jesus that he is the son of God. And if one doesn't believe it, it's not because there's a lack of evidence. Jesus is saying to those Jews, look at my life. Remember, this is what Jesus is saying about himself. He's saying, my testimony alone, I understand. My testimony about myself alone, that's not enough. So look to my father, look to the word, look to Moses, look to John the baptizer, look to my life. And you will see, I am who I said I am. And that's the ultimate message of John's gospel. It's the same message that he wants us to hear today. That Jesus is God's son. That he came into that world, uh, uh, that messy world. That he invaded it with his grace and compassion and radical love for people who are broken and sinful as we are identified by the law of Moses. And so, as lawbreakers, as rebellious people, as sinners, as one who are in need of a Savior, here he is. And may we, like the Jews of Jesus' day, may we not be like them and miss it. May we not miss this incredible act of mercy and grace. But instead, may we see all that bears witness to the truth. That Jesus, he is Savior. He is Lord. He is light. He is love. He is the way. He is the truth. In fact, he's life itself. I hope that our journey through this chapter 5 has been one that has either invited you into a, a deeper and more meaningful embracing of that reality, or maybe for some of you, a stepping into it for the very first time. I invite you, if you're, if you're watching online or you're here in the room today, if this, is, if, this, if this truth that Jesus is who he said he is, that he is the savior, that he is the lamb who takes away the sin of the world as his, as his cousin John identified him as, if God has, through the, through the work of his Holy Spirit, has brought you to that place to embrace that on a level of personal commitment, personal surrender, personal submission. I pray that, that you would, uh, as, as he's drawing you into that, that you would, that you would yield to that drawing that he's uh, having on your heart right now. And for those of you who have maybe taken that initial step of, of embracing salvation, maybe maybe that's a, something today that you can, you can pray that, that God would help you to more, more fully comprehend what it means to be his follower, to be one who recognizes these incredible witnesses of his identity, and follow him with a commitment and with a surrender that is that is intentional and is holistic and is ongoing. The worship team is going to close us with a song, but before they do that, I'd like to pray and then lead us into that song. And uh, then I'm going to invite you to sing along with them, but before they do, why don't you stand as we pray together, and then we close our, song, close our service with a worship song. Father, we're thankful that one of the things that you do because you love us so desperately is you, you work in ways to remove our doubts. Jesus did that. And you use, Lord, all of these different things, just the five things that we looked at today and, and many more. These aren't the only witnesses to Jesus. They're just the ones that are mentioned in this particular passage. Everything that is, Lord, screams that he is the way. And Lord, whether we need to take that step into following you for the first time or take a step of more depth. Take a step, a step of greater commitment. Take a, depth of, a, d- a step of, of, of greater surrender to your will. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work in our individual lives and in us collectively as we're gathered here today, in person and online. Lord God, that you would do a work in us. That we could become the people that genuinely and fully Give our lives over to you. That the life we live wouldn't be the life that we choose for ourselves, but instead would be the life that you want us to live on a daily basis. We worship you today, God, and we surrender to you. We pray that you would break us to that point of being those who have one desire. to be the followers of your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.